This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Well, thank you very much for, for coming this morning. Um, <clears throat> so today I'll be talking about participation in the automaton in Leibniz's synthetic natural philosophy. Um, in Leibniz's mature natural philosophy, souls play a key metaphysical role by providing unity and activity to nature. Um, in the quote, spiritual automaton that is synthetic in the sense that it incorporates conceptual material from traditional metaphysics, as well as the new mechanical philosophy of the 17th century. Further, I suggest that for Leibniz, souls operate in the manner of spiritual automata in three ways. Um, souls act spontaneously by means of their imminent nature. Their nature is a result of an external design, in this case by, by God. And souls are able to act and produce effects without the need for conscious knowledge or deliberation. By bringing together a traditional notion of an immaterial soul with that of a mechanical automaton, I argue that Leibniz presents an early mechanical conception of the soul or the mind, where machines come to inform our understanding of cognition in various ways. Moreover, the spiritual automaton does so in a way that reflects Leibniz's distinctive methodological aspirations, which I suggest seek to unify and preserve the best from prima facie divergent philosophical traditions. Now, before I go into more, any more detail, I want to thank my committee, I'm Julie Klein and Stephen Napier from the philosophy department as well as my external reader, Moens Lerka, for reading and commenting on the dissertation. Um, particularly, I want to thank Julie for supporting and encouraging my interest in early modern philosophy in general, um, as well as Leibniz in particular, and for providing a model of how to conduct scholarship in the history of philosophy. Um, I also want to note that Helen Lang from the philosophy department was involved in the project through um, the preliminary exams and helped me in many ways to articulate the philosophical problems with which the dissertation is concerned. Um, I also want to thank the philosophy community um, <coughs> here at Villanova as a whole um, has been a wonderful place uh, for me over the last uh, decade or so um, to study and discuss the history of philosophy, and I profited measurably from conversations with both teachers, as well as my student colleagues. Um, and lastly, I also want to thank my parents, um, who were able to come down from Albany for the defense, as well as my partner, Beth, um, for the boundless support they provided me over the years. <coughs> um, when I first arrived at I would have scarcely believed that I would spend so much time and energy thinking and writing about um, Leibniz. My portrait of Leibniz at the time largely came from Kant. Um, in this case, Leibniz was a dogmatic rationalist speculation. Um, further, I knew of Leibniz as the author of the Theodicy, who famously argued that this, this world is the best of all possible worlds. Um, now, the responsibility for my first picking up and reading Leibniz lies with Michael Kim, who had the idea um, way back in our second year as graduate students to conduct an independent study on Leibniz under Julie's direction. Mike was kind enough to invite me to participate. My interest peaked by reading Spinoza and Deleuze. I just decided to join in. Um, now, what I found when I began to read Leibniz was an endlessly inventive philosopher who always seemed to draw surprising and unexpected conclusions. I found that I wanted to understand the deeper logic of Leibniz's thinking and understand the ways that it could produce such beautiful and elegant, if arguably groundless, ideas. In particular, I was fixated by the way that Leibniz took each infinitesimally small detail of a given substance to be contained within what he calls its complete concept, um, and hence part of that substance's nature um, as a possibility in the mind of God. Now, over time, I became increasingly interested in the dimension of Leibniz's philosophical approach that some commentators have um, dubbed his eclecticism, uh, but which I have chosen in this project to call uh, the synthetic approach. Um, briefly, Leibniz explicitly claims that his philosophical project seeks to harmonize the best of what the various philosophical schools, both ancient and modern, have proposed. And this means, for instance, 
um, that Leibniz wants to balance the insights of, new, of the new mechanical philosophy of the 17th century with traditional metaphysical doctrines. Um, there are myriad examples of this sort of claim within Leibniz's corpus, um, some of which I include. Um, don't quote me on that. If you want to refer to some of those passages, feel free. Now, the import of this approach for me has in part been as a heuristic principle. Um, for Leibniz, Leibniz, philosophy is not a sectarian endeavor according to the truth is the exclusive philosophical intellect or school. Rather, the truth is distributed throughout the world and is represented through a plurality of perspectives. And one thing that Leibniz has taught me, and therefore, is to retain an open mind and not to remain stuck within a particular approach or canon, um, not to give in, in other words, to what Leibniz scholar of the early 20th century, Dietrich Monka, once called learned one-sidedness, or gelehrten einseitigkeit um, in the German. Many of the commentators that have drawn attention to this eclectic or synthetic dimension of Leibniz's thought um, have taken a broad view, arguing that this approach shapes Leibniz's philosophical system at a macro um, for instance, Christian Mercer Platonism and Aristotelianism that she argues shapes um, Leibniz's overall philosophical metaphysics. The question that I wanted to address in this dissertation, however, was to what degree we can see Leibniz's synthetic approach as operating at the level of individual philosophical concepts on um, the ideas that populate Leibniz's system. In other words, do Leibniz's synthesizing tendencies um, within, let's say, a unitary concept, uh, multiple philosophical perspectives? <coughs> To answer this question, um, I decided to focus on Leibniz's claim that the soul operates as a quote-unquote spiritual or incorporeal automaton. And spiritual automaton is a term that Leibniz uses to characterize the soul on a number of occasions beginning in the mid-1690s. Um, it first appears in the new system of 1695 as a way to illustrate what Leibniz calls spontaneity, or the idea that all of a substance's activities arise from its nature alone without any external influence. Um, I believe there's a quotation E on the handout, I, I believe, is, is that um, passage. <coughs> now, Lenz continues to use the spiritual automaton after the new system in his debate with Pierre Bale in 1698, for instance, his 1706 commentary on Spinoza, and such texts as the Theodicy of 1710 and the Monadology of 1714. Um, I've included these passages on the handout as well, if you're interested in referring to them. Um, <coughs> And I argue that in order to understand Leibniz's concept of the soul as a quote-unquote spiritual automaton, we should interpret it as an example of a synthetic concept that unifies multiple theoretical perspectives. Um, as many of you might know, philosophers operating within the mechanical framework often use automata to model entities including living bodies as well as, in certain cases, um, the universe as a whole. Leibniz extends this model to the immaterial soul, thereby conceiving the soul itself in terms appropriated from the mechanical philosophy and hence sort of reflecting multiple um, theoretical perspectives or as I'm suggesting. Now, the notion of a quote-unquote spiritual automaton was of interest to me for several other reasons as well. Leibniz's use of the automaton as a model for the immaterial soul is rather idiosyncratic, although not entirely unique. Um, as many of you might know, Spinoza also claims that the, that the soul works as a spiritual automaton in a, a particular passage that Leibniz did himself read from the Tractatus on the, on the Emendation of the Intellect. Further, as Pierre Bale initially pointed out, um, this notion is a little puzzling. This is because Leibniz describes souls as simple substances that change themselves even though they do not possess parts. Um, and parts are the means by which um, self-moving machines or automata um, are able to move themselves. So the fact that souls are simple, in this sense, lacking parts, means they belong to a fundamentally different ontological category than that of self-moving machines or automata. 
Uh, so in this regard, there's a basic question of how to interpret what Leibniz means by saying that the soul is like a spiritual automaton. Now, the need to understand just what he means by this particular phrase took on an added significance for me when I saw that commentators on Leibniz tended to overlook um, this particular term, concept, or only to address it in a rather cursory way. Uh, there are a few exceptions to this. Um, for this audience, I suppose I should uh, to mention who identifies its presence within Leibniz's corpus as a, an important point of overlap, mutatis mutandis, between Leibniz and Spinoza. Um, but the fact that commentators um, tended not to pay sufficient attention to the notion of the spiritual automaton struck me as having real consequences in two discussions currently taking place within the secondary literature on Leibniz. The first is a recent debate among pr uh, primarily American commentators on the topic of spontaneity um, in Leibniz. I've already noted um, that Leibniz uses the spiritual automaton as a way of illustrating his doctrine of spontaneity. And although commentators interested in that particular topic, in spontaneity, have provided increasingly fine-grained analyses of the way that it relates to Leibniz's conceptions of perception, desire, freedom, and teleology, among other themes, they have not provided analysis or clarification of the overall role of the spiritual automaton in explaining the illustration of the spontaneous activity of a substance, or the way that Leibniz uses it to illustrate that particular activity. Um, I became interested in the question of whether an analysis of the way that Leibniz associates spontaneity with the activity of the spiritual automaton could shed new light on this topic. Um, second, scholars working primarily in English and French have paid increasing attention over recent, year, uh, over recent years to Leibniz's conception of organic bodies as so-called machines of nature. According to Leibniz, organic bodies are machines designed by God that remain machines, quote, to the least of their parts, unquote, meaning that each part of the body um, is itself a machine, um, and ad infinitum. In focusing the structure of the body as an infinitely complex automaton, these readers tend not to address the fact that Leibniz likewise conceives the corresponding soul in similar terms. Thus, I thought that analysis of the meaning and nature of the soul as a spiritual automaton could provide a useful supplement to accounts of the bodily machine of nature. <clears throat> Now, in writing the dissertation itself, I examined Leibniz's writings in their own language, in their original languages, both published and unpublished, um, both in the, form of e in the form of essays, correspondence, and notes, um, to reconstruct Leibniz's formulation of the soul. I situate it within the wider context of 17th century philosophy in order to show why the notion of an automaton presents itself as a useful model for Leibniz's science of the soul. Um, putting Leibniz back into this historical context not only allows me to, at least hopefully, render his concepts intelligible in their own terms, but it allows me to show the way that Leibniz uses the spiritual automaton as a conceptual tool by means of which to differentiate his own positions from those of contemporary rivals. I examine Leibniz's reception of the mechanical philosophy um, primarily through Hobbes and Descartes to show how Leibniz relates to and appropriates mechanical ideas such as that of Conatus in the case of Hobbes or um, the notion of the automaton, even while insisting that the mechanical vision of reality I analyzed Leibniz's own comparison of his account of the spiritual automaton with that of Spinoza in the treatise on the emendation of the intellect. And I also show the way that Leibniz's concept of the spiritual automaton supplements his intervention in the early 18th century debate on plastic natures that took place between Jean Leclerc and Pierre Bayle. Um, <clears throat> now in terms of content, uh, my analysis of Leibniz's concept of the spiritual automaton concludes that the soul operates analogously to a self-moving machine in three ways. First, the soul acts spontaneously as a result of its nature alone. Um, souls are therefore spiritual automata um, on analogy with the way that a self-moving machine moves itself according to the mechanical dispositions of its parts. Second, souls act spontaneously according to God's design and artifice. 
In this way, they, they, in this way, they act in harmony, not just with their own bodies, but also with the rest of the world, with the rest of the substances populating um, the actual world. <coughs> in this way, um, they act, uh, or, so they act in harmony with their own bodies as well as um, the rest of the world. Um, thus, souls are spiritual automata on analogy with the way the mechanical automata are designed by human engineers. Third, spiritual automata can act without distinct knowledge of what they're doing and without the need for conscious deliberation. Um, in this regard, souls are spiritual automata by analogy with the way that mechanical um, self-moving machines move themselves without the need for conscious knowledge or, or deliberation um, in similar fashion. <coughs> now, chapter one of the dissertation features a analysis of spiritual automata in the system of 1605, which is an important text because it represents theory of forces and the corresponding mature doctrine of substantial spontaneity. The goal of this chapter is to understand the central conceptual issues for implies the mature theory of philosophy of nature in general, as well as the theory of the soul which is in particular. The young Leibniz's early reception of Hobbes's mechanical philosophy and its consequences for a science of the soul. Although Leibniz rejects um, reductively materialistic visions of the mechanical philosophy such as Hobbes, he is willing to accept the truth of mechanism, provided it is grounded in the workings of incorporeal entities such as souls or minds. I argue that although Leibniz criticizes Hobbes' reductively materialistic account of nature, he nonetheless appropriates the key Hobbesian concept of conatus um, to explain the connection between the body and the mind. This provides an early instance of the way that Leibniz appropriates mechanical ideas and translates them into a non-materialistic philosophical framework. Chapter 3 examines Leibniz's philosophical account of automata in light of Descartes' early ide earlier identification of bodies with self-moving machines. Descartes famous, famously argued that animal behavior could be understood on purely mechanical grounds without reference to souls or sensation. Further, Descartes contrasted human freedom with the actions of an automaton, which simply carry out motions dependent upon their initial design. Now, Leibniz accepts the thesis that animals are automata, um, but argues that they also have souls that perceive the world. Further, Leibniz rejects Descartes' conception of freedom, arguing instead that spontaneity and freedom are compatible with the design proper to an automaton. Um, in this sense, for Leibniz, all souls, um, human as well as animal, are those spiritual automata that spontaneously carry out the motions Chapter 4 compares Leibniz's account of the spiritual automaton with the account he found in Spinoza's Tractatus on the Imitation of the Intellect. I examine Leibniz's reading notes taken in early 1678, as well as the Animate Versiones Ad Bacteri Librum of 1706, which is a commentary on a book by Johann Georg Wachter in which Leibniz inserts a commentary on Spinoza. Um, in Spinoza's view, the soul acts as a spiritual automaton when it acts according to the laws of the intellect to produce true ideas and reproduce um, thereby the order of nature. Although Spinoza also conceived of the spiritual automaton as acting spontaneously, Leibniz explicitly opposes Spinoza's account. Um, Leibniz insists um, that the soul acts as a spiritual automaton in producing all of its perceptions, not just those that are adequate ideas of nature. And I think the, that passage is on your handout. Uh, I don't remember what letter it is, but you can go um, <coughs> on Spinoza. Five, um, whereas the first four chapters analyze and explain the development of Leibniz's conception of the spiritual automaton, chapter five shows how Leibniz uses the concept as a tool to intervene into a specific controversy in the early 18th century. Um, the controversy in question is the debate over plastic natures between Pierre Bayle and Jean Leclerc. 
when Leclerc re republished selections from Ralph Cudworth's True Intellectual System of the Universe as part of his Bibliothèque Choisie in 1703, Bale accused Cudworth and, uh, by extension, Leclerc of unwittingly opening the door to atheism by proposing a theory of incorporeal plastic nature um, that is responsible for organizing matter. Bale thought it theologically safer to attribute such organization to God alone. Moreover, Bale supported his claim with the argument that causes must have knowledge of how to bring about their effects, um, which is a form of knowledge that Cudworth um, denies in the case of plastic natures. Now, uh, in terms of Leibniz's intervention, I analyzed paragraphs 4 and 3 of the Theodicy to show how Leibniz's formulation of the spiritual automaton provides a theoretical alternative to Bale's occasionalism by providing a mo model of unknowing activity or activity without having conscious knowledge or deliberation. <clears throat> now, before I close and turn to the questions from the committee, I briefly want to address a few limitations to the project as it currently stands. The first relates to my contribution to, to the debate over spontaneity in the literature. At this stage, I feel that I need to do more to show how an account of spontaneity focusing on the spiritual automaton can shed light on the topic and reframe the debate. In particular, I want to articulate more explicitly the connection between the soul as a spiritual automaton and the form of imminent teleology um, that governs the unfolding of the soul's spontaneous perceptions. <coughs> the second relates to chapters 2 and 5 in particular. I think the overall thesis of both these chapters are sound, but I still feel that I can do more to strengthen and focus their claims and really motivate them. Um, as I continue to think about this project, I will think about ways of developing both In a related vein, I would like to continue developing an account of the problematic that I trace in Chapter 5. Um, to my knowledge, Bale's argument that knowledge is a necessary condition for being a true cause, as well as Leibniz's response to it, has not yet been given its full due in the literature. Um, so I'd like to uncover the way that this argument is connected to a network of assumptions that I think philosophers held regarding activity and knowledge that might not always be evident to present-day readers. Um, further, my hypothesis is that these assumptions are relevant to understanding the way that notions of law, causality, and teleology shift and transform in the 17th and early 18th centuries. And this is one problem, in other words, that in future work. In some, these five chapters in the dissertation as a whole aim to show why Leibniz develops the concept of the soul as a spiritual automaton, as well as how he deploys it as an intellectual tool to, uh, within concrete philosophical debates. I argue that the spiritual automaton synthesizes the traditional notion of an immaterial soul As, as automata in ways. They act spontaneously, they act according to design, and they often act without conscious knowledge or deliberation. The spiritual automaton, whereby bodies methodological aspirations, provides an early historical example of how machines can inform our understanding of cognition. Um, I once again want to thank my committee for reading the dissertation and everyone here for it this morning for your attention, and I welcome and look forward to your questions. about Leibniz, insofar as he was engaged in exchanges 
and controversies with Hobbes, Picard, Spinoza, Weil, in particular, but also with less familiar figures such as Jean Baudrillard, Jean Leclerc, Lisa Jacquot. It is a demanding, but also I think wise way of going about writing about Leibniz. It reflects something very deeply ingrained in Leibniz's mindset and methodology, and the fact that there is no such thing as an essential Leibniz or a kind of Leibniz in himself, a kind of philosophy which exists outside such exchanges and controversies. In its incidentally, one of the things that make it so difficult to write any historical philosophical study about Leibniz in his work. When one tries to sever the ties that his texts uphold to other texts, to other positions, and other positions, other the philosophers, it is easy to end up seeing Leibniz's philosophy in the way Bertrand Russell saw the monodology, that is to say, as a kind of fantastic fairy tale, perhaps but wholly arbitrary, or as you just said yourself, as beautiful and elegant, if arguably groundless. In order to grasp how each text and each argument is rooted in reality, one has to know what sort of debate Leibniz was contributing to when writing. Now that is of course true about any philosophical text, but it is strikingly true when it comes to Leibniz. All that to say that if one wants to understand what is going on in Leibniz, one must get to know those other intellectuals with whom Leibniz was discussing. And you have Chris in great detail, and I don't think we can give you enough credit for that. Okay, so now I have some critical remarks, none of which should overshadow the fact that I really am very impressed with this piece of work as a whole. So I will not say much about the first chapter, I will move straight to the chapter on Hobbes. Now the chapter on Hobbes, and Leibniz's take on materialism, is very interesting. There are a few moments to include, especially in the correspondence with Tomasius and the 1671 letter, which finds itself relegated to footnote. Now, right on the other hand, to include, for example, the letters of to Hobbes himself, which are, in fact, all the understudies in the commentaries. In fact, the only paper I can really think of that has been written about this is a text by Schulman from 10 years ago. But apart from that, I have little to object to in relation to the chapter as such, which can pretty much stand on its own. I have one small objection regarding the overall role of the chapter in thesis. I'm not quite sure how to situate it in relation to the remaining touches, which are all quite tightly knit together. It may stems mainly from the fact that here, in this chapter on Leibniz and Hobbes, we choose to work on texts by the young Leibniz, so texts from the late 60s and early 70s, whereas the rest of the pieces focuses on texts and debates from the early 1690s onwards. At the same time, to the extent that you choose to deal with Leibniz's criticism of materialism only in the context of his early work on Hobbes, you end up not dealing with Leibniz's take on materialism in the later period that you are otherwise mainly concerned with. I wonder here whether a more balanced thesis 
would not have approached Leibniz's critique of materialism from the perspective of his later discussion of Locke's concessions to the materialist thesis of thinking matter. This, this debate seems to me deeply relevant to the discussion of the spiritual automaton. What I have in mind here is, of course, the background for this famous argument against thinking matter that we touch upon briefly in the conclusion the so-called Mill argument. Now, this argument has received a fair amount of scholarly attention from commentators interested in Leibniz's relation to materialism, from Margaret Wilson's work from decades ago to more recent articles by Paul Lodge, Kathleen Wilson, Duncan Stewart, Marlon Rosenwald, and others. Now, I, can think, I think I can understand why we might find it a little uninspiring to enter this already somewhat overcrowded field of research. The problem is, of course, that in general thesis and problematic seems to call for it. So you should. Okay, I'm going to the Descartes chapter. The Descartes chapter includes one of the clearest analyses and analysis of Leibniz's opposition to the Cartesian conception of the soul not the freedom of the soul that I have ever read. With regard to the specific comparison of the two distinct uses of the term automaton, the one physical and the other spiritual, I am, however, not quite clear about what the comparison boils down to. At times, it seems as if they just happen to use the same term to describe two entirely different things in two entirely different contexts. So I have some difficulties in making good meaning of the comparison, so to speak. Second, more In your analysis of the kind, you show, and I'll quote from the chapter, that on the fourth meditation account, the highest form of freedom of the will is not the freedom of indifference, but rather the spontaneous ascent to a clear and distinct perception. I'm not convinced that you are right about this. I also think that Leibniz did not see it that way, but only to call in the kind the conception of freedom as indifference. This seems also to be the conclusion you yourself reach when summarizing Leibniz's opposition to the kind by saying the following Leibniz rejects, uh, Leibniz rejects the kind's view of freedom and he replaces it with a theory of the soul a spiritual automaton that acts, acts spontaneously in accord with its nature is determined by God. But we don't really come back to the other notion of freedom in Kaiser, the one I think Leibniz in fact never really spoke about. <coughs> it included in, the, in your analysis of, of the Kaiser, and one would then also expect it, expect it to play a role when we get to Leibniz as something that relativizes or disproves Leibniz's somewhat one-sided analysis of the kind at this point. So I was wondering if you could say a bit about that, about the value of Leibniz's analysis of the kind's conception of freedom in light of the kind's two-sided notion of freedom. <coughs> so, chapter on Spinoza. I'm very impressed. Now, relations between Leibniz and Spinoza have, of course, as you know, been my own hobby horse for some of these new years. I expected to find a number of little technical or historical details that I could then be nitpicking about. 
But the fact is that I didn't really find it. And also, that intriguing aspect of that relation between life and spinoza that I have completely overlooked myself. So the analysis as a whole gets I have however two remarks here. The first thing to concern is term. I'm not convinced that the term spontaneous is appropriate when speaking of Spinoza. For example, when you write that, and I quote, Spinoza emphasizes the spontaneous activity of the soul in producing true ideas. Now, the term spontaneity is, of course, a Leibnizian neologism. So we don't find that in Spinoza. Because he then, for example, used the adverb spontan, for example. Well, not in Greek. The ethics contains not a single occurrence, neither does the treatise of the innovation of the intellect. There are a number of occurrences in the Tratatus Theologico Politicus, which Curly generally translates correctly, I think, by voluntarily, but Spinoza systematically opposes it to what is forced or portrayed from strain. It is also the use of the term sponsor that we find in Tratatus Politicus. But the closest that I have come to an occurrence, and we go in your direction, is from the Tratatus Theologico Politicus, chapter 4, where Spinoza writes the following. If men were so constituted by nature that they desired nothing except what true reason teaches them to desire, then of course society would be laws. But it would be completely sufficient to teach men true moral lessons so that they would do voluntarily, wholeheartedly, and in a manner worthy of a free man, what is really useful. But again, Voluntarily seems to be the better translation here rather than spontaneously, despite the metaphysical concerns and references to anything voluntary in Spinoza imply. Now, in any case, if we can speak of the soul being spontaneous when rational in Spinoza, it is, of course, not in the same sense as in Leibniz, as you point out yourself. It seems that what you call spontaneous activity of the soul in Spinoza is, in fact, what Spinoza calls free, is to say, self-determinate. So my second remark about the Spinoza chapter concerns not so much Magnus or Spinoza, but Johann Leobacher, who acts as a middleman in relation to Leibniz's later remarks spiritual automaton. Now you quote the bit in the 1706 Lucidarius Part 4, section 17, where Wachter quotes the passage from the Tratatus de Intellectus Inventation on the spiritual automaton. But the assessment of Wachter is here very simple. Backwards, partly by both isolating the mind as a part of the human that is free, precisely insofar as it is not determined by laws. Now, looked at it in this way, this is in Spinoza, of course, in relation to Spinoza, of course, backwards. But the passage in Wacker that he glossed here says, and I hear a quote your own translation, that the operation did not follow by the poser of the mind or the better part of the human, but by external causes. Now, what I think you failed to take into account here is that Wacker is not speaking generally about the status of the human mind in Spinoza's epistemology. 
If you go to the previous paragraph of the Udusudakas, Vakta has discussed Spinoza's theory of the eternity of the mind in Ethics 5, and he has talked about the, what Spinoza calls the part of the mind that is eternal. So, in the passage, when he is not speaking of the human mind as the internal and free part of the human being, but he is speaking of the part of the human mind that is free and eternal. You also say that he gets Spinoza's doctrine of reason and imagination wrong, but your point of comparison is to compare to Intellectual and not the text that Bach himself refers to in the previous section, namely Ethics 5, Proposition 21, where Spinoza proves that there is only imagination and memory when there is an existing body, leading up to the conclusion that the eternity of the mind does not involve imagination and memory. So, here again, I wonder if Bach's analysis does not fare better when you look at the context in which it is in fact set. Now, of course, I say this because you probably know this from the stuff by Marcel Bouvet. I'm a great fan of that. I think it is a little bit crazy, but he's also very clever, and a much cleverer reader of the Spinoza than people often make him out to be. So, finally, very briefly, I will say a word on the chapter regarding Leibniz, Bale, and debate on plastic pages. This chapter is on all accounts excellent. And I love the way you set up the whole controversy with all the interlocutors Leibniz, Cotworth, Bale, Jacquemus, Leclerc, and so on. It's great. I learned a lot. Just one thing. To the extent that they are largely developed his position on the basis of Malebranche, I would have liked to hear a little more about what Malebranche had to say of all this as well. And I was also wondering whether the correspondence between Leibniz and Malebranche might not help shedding some more light on this particular controversy between Leibniz and Bayer. For the same reason, namely that Bayer gets his position in physical precision largely from Malebranche. But I think that is something you can consider when reworking this for publication. Which will lead me to my final remarks, which are about what, from my point of view, we could go on to do with this text. Now, that's just an opinion. I don't think the other members of the committee will maybe have other words to say about that. But here is my take on it. Now, it is obvious that it's a basis for a whole lot of publication in there and not just articles. I think as a whole, the thesis is officially well organized for a book. There would be some tightening up here and there, some additional material, material to take into account, etc. But you have the structure for a monograph very nicely laid out already. There are, however, two recommendations that I would make. I think we should work on the chapter on Hobbes as a separate article and leave that out from the possibility. <laughs> At least in a book, you should not dedicate an entire chapter to it, but simply summarize it in an introduction. Next, I will add a chapter on dog thinking matter and the male argument. I am well aware that it is not the most exciting thing to do, but I am certain <laughs> that with your talent, 
for precise and dynamic contextualization, you will manage to draw something new from these texts. Finally, as maybe I've always cited option for further development, I guess I was a bit surprised that you do not, at least as far as I recall, mention or discuss the fact that the notion of an automaton is also used by Pascal in the Pensée to qualify the human being. For example, in part 30, fragment 821 in the Soma edition, where he says, Now, granted, it is not a notion that comes up often in the scale. And what he has in mind is maybe man as a physical machine, a bit like in But I think this take on physical automaton and how he relates the automaton to argumentative strategies and to persuasion and rhetoric is kind of interesting. Now, Linus, of course, knew Pascal in the Pensier, although he was less impressed by most people's work by, by Pascal's work in philosophy. Nonetheless, in the purely comparative mode, there might be something you could dig your teeth into here as well. Okay. I think that's all. Congratulations on your thesis. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, Do you want to respond a little bit? I, I can try to respond to some of some of the things. <laughs> so, so thank you very much for. for, for uh, I do want to note that in terms of I learned very much I do want to thank you for that in terms of being trying trying to be sensitive to um, context debates that Leibniz is engaging in directly, um, etc. Um, I guess if I could start with the, the Pascal, I think I'm very would be very interested in working on that particular connection. Um, I think I realized that that was that that was in, in in Pascal. I think a little bit late after I developed much of the, the thesis, um, and at which point it didn't really um, develop. And I also wasn't really sure if there was, uh, Pascal realized about that or or what I you know, I hadn't really dove into his notes on, on the Ponce. Um, to, to work on it in the future, and I think. Um, and I think Charlie probably knows a little bit about this. I think this is actually one place that I think someone like Pierre Bourdieu um, is going to be interested in someone like Leibniz um, coming out of Pascal uh, in, in the 20th century. Um, so that's something that I definitely very much like to develop um, in future work. Um, <clears throat> in terms of the chapters, um, I think you put your finger on worries I have about that, the second chapter on Hobbes, and I think which I, I sort of pointed to in the comments it, that I started with, um, that it, it does, I wasn't necessarily sure how many connections material that I was more interested in. And the reason I did include it was because of the sort of way that I'm arguing that he is appropriate in certain aspects of Hobbes, philosophy, namely Canatus, um, in the context of, of, of uh, the account of the soul. Um, so that's sort of why I wanted to, to, to keep it in there. Or, and to really have it there, but I, I certainly acknowledge it's not necessarily um, sufficiently connected with, with, with the rest of the work. Um, now, in terms of Locke, I, I'm not an expert on Locke in, in any way, and which is one of the reasons why I think I, I try to avoid some of that material, um, though I think you're probably right, I should, I should try to dive in. And I do gesture to that at the very end of the dissertation, as you know, in the, in the conclusion. Um, so something I, I need to look into <coughs> uh, more. Um, in terms of this uh, Descartes um, comments, um, I'm trying to, so in terms of the, the question of freedom in Descartes, 
I think I avoided that second notion and sort of maybe I think relegated to footnotes perhaps, um, in part because I don't think Leibniz talks about it, as you point out, that, that Leibniz is sort of, I mean, he's selectively reading Descartes in, in a particular way um, and, and maybe arguably sort of overplaying the freedom of indifference um, and ignoring arguably the, the sort of other forms of, of freedom. Um, <clears throat> and I sort of focus on that because that's what in, in, in interest of explaining Leibniz. Um, that being said, I think yeah, there is much to say about um, <clears throat> the other notion of freedom in Descartes. Um, and there's also extensive literature that I am sort of a little bit, a little bit afraid of as well when it comes to that. So that's something that, that I think I, I should think about um, a little further. Um, though it is interesting, certainly, that, that Leibniz sort of doesn't acknowledge that or, or, or sort of ignores it. I mean, certainly another, another thought that I might have in, in this context is that, um, I mean, there might be a difference in the physiology, in other words, if the car is sort of focusing on clear understanding that gap between freedom. If Leibniz is sort of trying to introduce a sort of more uh, spectrum of sort of degrees of freedom or something like this, he might, uh, so he might be downplaying the sort of fact that you need a clear and distinct perception to sort of spontane spontaneously mm. ascend. Um, that could be another thought that, that, that might play into what, why he's not as interested in that particular um, form of freedom. But that would be speculative at this point. Um, now, in terms of, I think you raised some interesting um, worries about the comparison of, of automata in uh, Descartes and, and Leibniz. Um, and I, I don't know if I have a ton to say about that, that right now, other than I think that um, what I was trying to do, of course, is sort of 
and maybe this is a little bit more of me bringing a little bit to the, to the material, trying to reconstruct what it would look like if you were to sort of compare them, um, put them side by side. So that might have been a little bit more of me sort of bringing the framework of my, my project uh, to, the, um, <coughs> to those particular texts, which don't necessarily, which aren't very, you know, they're not very extensive. So it might have been a little bit of a reconstruction on my part. Um, for the sake of trying to fit it into this sort of uh, framework, but I, I don't, that's just a thought. I don't, do you want to? Or, well, yeah. <coughs> I'll use less time <laughs> since I'm interjecting okay. here. Um, I, my own view is that um, Spinoza is taking on the Cartesian notion of automata, right? And there's a sort of clear rehabilitation of automata against what Descartes says in the Part One of the Principles. Um, when Leibniz picks up the term. framework on trying to Um, so I'll, I'll then, uh, I guess, uh, move to the comments on, on chapter four. Um, so I, I fully agree. I, I don't know if I bought there. Certainly nowhere near as well as you know, the author. And that's something I should revisit. Writing the chapter, I was sort of focusing on the way that Leibniz is sort of reading it. And that's the question. Maybe something I'd have. Um, I have to think that in that 
way you're saying maybe it's connected to um, ethics five a little bit. Um, I keep. I was trying to stay away from that for for. TTP. Um, I think really what I was doing in that chapter is, is simply saying that uh, in the epistemology of the So that's what I was reading as analogous, or at the very least, to tease out um, the ways it might or the ways it's not necessarily um, akin to the Leibnizian concept of spontaneity. Um, let's see. Um, chapter five, um, thank you very much for the, the comment about Mal Branch. Um, sort of, uh, one thing I, I should ask, sort of, is that my interest in that passage of Theodicy sort of started out when I um, was comparing it with the work of Arnold Perlitz, um, and then I was also looking at that, that argument from Malbranch. So I sort of And Ben was trying to sort of tease out that could be related to what Leibniz is saying. As I sort of worked on that passage more, I realized, hey, I'm actually missing this you know, debate that fails with people like Jacques Lowe and people like, like Leclerc. And then realized I had to sort of say that's actually the context out of which Leibniz's comments in the theodicy are emerging, or at least the more direct context. Um, and I, I suppose what I was sort of suggesting in, in, in the comments at the beginning um, is that I'm very much interested in trying to sort of broaden out a little bit further again. Um, now that I've sort of done a little bit more of the research in terms of that immediate context to see how that argument um, that you need knowledge in order to act um, really sort of plays out in a wider sort of framework, um, including people like Malbranche um, and, and people like Erlings. Um, so something I, I definitely want to try to do a little bit more of um, in the future. Um, and I think that's, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, right. so thank you. And yet the dissertation read as one coherent whole. And it, was, uh, it was great. Uh, that's a compliment to you, to you. Um, so yeah. So I do want to focus on the chapter on spontaneity. And to just uh, set the stage for some of my questions and comments, uh, just a few quotations from that chapter. So I won't uh, Page two in that chapter, you. Um, uh, again, this is very clear. I think it's very clear-headed. You say Leibniz holds that while the body is physical, mechanical automaton, and the soul as spiritual automaton, acts independently according to their own laws. Their mutual expression produces the semblance of interaction between the soul and body. And so that prompted me to think about unity. Uh, how, to, how does Leibniz uh, then account for the unity of corporeal? same chapter, uh, I think I have you correct here, um, it's page 25, any, uh, and you quote interaction, 
any interaction between substances is merely apparent for it actually results from the way that God arranges their activities in advance to correspond to pre-established harmony. Right? Conceiving of the soul as an automaton allows Leibniz to apply his account of the spontaneity and agreement to the soul. The spiritual automaton is a self-moving entity whose activities unfold according to its initial design, Plus, just as by conceiving of the body as a machine of nature, Leibniz was able to explain the nature of the body as a self-moving mechanical structure whose movements unfold in agreement with the other bodies populating nature. Conceiving of the soul as a spiritual automaton enables Leibniz to explain the nature of the soul as self-moving intellect unfold in agreement with those of the other souls populating the natural world. So the idea here, I think you wanted to get across is that the body obeys its laws, soul obeys its laws, and the two are united because of the pre-established harmony of the planet. So René Joseph uh, right, uh, writes to Leibniz and he comments, correspondence united because the movements of the one correspond to those of the other with complete symmetry. And I sent you kind of a humorous before, um, the duck soup. Did you ever see the, did you watch the music? This is a, everyone see duck soup, right? The mirror scene, it's a very famous scene. Okay, so that's what I thought of immediately when I thought of this, right? Okay, I'm always thinking of uh, philosophy humor. Um, now, Leibniz admit, admits, right, uh, in his letter to Boulder that, quote, it would have been wrong of me to object to the Cartesians that the agreement God immediately maintains between soul and body does not bring about a true union. My pre-established harmony would do no better than it does. Right, that's how, that's how he, uh, uh, that's how he, well, that's one so I guess I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about, um, well, the unity. The unity of the human person is understood by, by Leibniz and try to bring back together again soul and body. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, thank you for the question. I mean, so certainly it's a question that, that sort of challenges Leibniz himself. It does, yeah. Uh, uh, I, I, I don't know what you can say yeah. in terms of right or wrong answer, but... I mean, certainly in terms of my reading of Leibniz, and this is where I think the, you know, looking at him through the dynamics, I think really, really helps. Um, I think, and you know, there's people who argue, for instance, that let's say the new system where he presents the, you know, hypothesis of harmony, um, which you're saying, yes, yeah, is not, doesn't seem to get us that sort of strong union. Um, you know, he, he is sort of, there's people who argue that it's sort of writing for Cartesians, and so they have this strong dualism already. What might they, um, or how might I sort of get across the Cartesians in a way that they might accept? Um, so there's a certain, you know, I think, arguably a historical um, aspect of that presentation of pre-established harmony. Um, but I guess when I, when I sort of, the way that I find it helpful has always been to sort of read it through the dynamics, which really becomes clear that, well, whatever bodies are in Leibniz, well, whatever we ultimately decide bodies are, they sort of result from or they're expressions of um, the activities of underlying incorporeal substances or souls. Um, and so on the one hand, you know, you say soul and body aren't really the same thing. Um, but the body is, in a sense, the metaphysical result of the activities of, of, of not just one soul, um, but an infinite uh, sort of aggregate of souls which are collected together. Um, 
So that's how I sort of have tried to always read it. So I mean, and the DeVolder passage that you quote, I don't know how I would necessarily fit in, you know, give an account of that. As I see it, at any rate, within the, even within the framework of pre-established harmony, um, there's something like um, one body, which is an infinite aggregate of, 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 of other bodies, results from the activities of innumerable souls, which are sort of expressing themselves in the, in bodily form. Um, so I, I don't know if that's helpful, but yeah. Well, I think it's probably because uh, again, you, you have a number of interlocutors uh, in, in your dissertation, and. Um, I just gave um, uh, was a Jesuit, uh, uh, Aristotelian, De Bosset, uh, I think was an Aristotelian. Um, he, run, he runs the. We've also Jesuit, I believe. Uh, yeah, okay. Believe. Um, and then uh, Arnaud. Uh, so all of them run yeah. kind of the same critique about, you know, you, you, you haven't accounted for the unity yet. Yeah. Um, whereas you're right, when he's, it, this might be the conciliationist. Uh, coming out in Leibniz, he's trying to uh, concede a couple points to his specific interlocutors, yet that leaves Leibniz um, kind of, well, leaves the coherence of his own thought um, unaccounted for. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, it would be a project to try to <laughs> nail him down. Um, I had a, a, another question. Uh, between yeah. between soul and body, um, and here I don't have uh, a handy presentation, um, but uh, maybe you can say uh, a little bit where I think this came out of the Bale chapter, where the perceptions. Um, uh, it seemed to be that Bale's objection was that perceptions cannot be external. Right, I cannot perceive external things because then my soul would be. Sort of very, very tough question. Sort of Leibniz's metaphysics. You know, frustrated, trying to understand and, re and re <laughs> trying to understand it and, re and read Leibniz for, for you know for, for centuries. Um, you know, my I guess reading of it, you know, and this is connected with the notion of spontaneity, where he, he's very insistent that um, you know substance produces all of its perceptions of the world I internally. So you know, in other words, what appears to be interactions from external stimuli, let's say. Um, are just the sort of unfolding of my, my internal perceptions um, <clears throat> and then how I experience them, et, et, et cetera. The answer that I would, I would give, that, you know, whatever sort of external um, influence we take there to be between, between um, let's say, my substance or my soul or my body and the external world is sort of reflection of the actual internal workings out of, of, of its, its, its sort of internal nature. Um, so I think that's how I sort of want to read it. I don't know if that's, that might not be necessarily satisfying. Yeah, it strikes, well, it strikes yeah. me as impossible. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, and that's, you know, that's where you get the sort of very, you know, idealist, uh, very phenomenalist sort of readings of, of Leibniz that, that people are very, you know, that have very good evidence for. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, I have the intuition that we can Yeah, I, I, I did sort of leave that on, on, yeah. on the side a little bit. But I, mean, I, you know, I think in, in your comments that you, you sent me, I think, <coughs> um, <coughs> I, think I, 
think you, you brought, raised a worry about, you know, how can a perception lead to another perception? I think that was a, a Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe it's yeah. just a, yeah, it's a permutation of, you know, how can we perceive the external world when we have these internal things that mm -hmm. just, those, that's the account line that's trying to get about perception. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I think it, it's, the way that I, I read him, he wants to suggest that um, you know, perceptions have the sort of internally the thing that brings about the next perception, right? So we're, we don't, on the one hand, we don't need sort of external stimuli because we're spontaneously producing our perceptions. Um, and we can do that because perceptions sort of pass one into the next. Um, I experience hunger and that drives me to then uh, try to eat something in order to sort of satisfy hunger and so on and so forth. Um, so, in other words, the very internal con or the internal structure of our perceptions sort of aim towards um, the future perceptions that we are um, organized or designed to, to, to sort of have. Yeah. So, this notion of perception is more sort of like a desire or a motivation. Um, you just don't have that example. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, as, you know, when he says famously in the monadology, <coughs> you know, the only things that um, are contained within sub simple substances. Um, they don't have parts, but they have perceptions and appetitions, right? So perceptions, expressions of, of an external world that we're representing, um, and then also appetitions, which lead us from Um, 
isn't a consolidated subject, right? It's a, it's a part of nature. Um, and Leibniz, even though he sees each individual substance as connected in a network of other substances, still wants to preserve a kind of um, identity of the subject and its agency. And um, I think the reason for that has to do with issues in moral philosophy. Um, and so this kind of brings me to a, maybe a larger question. You know, as we think about Leibniz's metaphysical supplementation of mechanical philosophy, and as we think about um, what you identify as the <coughs> subsumption of mechanistic kinds of discourse into the metaphysical order. Um, you know, how are we going to sort out um, the metaphysics of the individual subject and its responsibility? And in, in some ways, I feel that um, Leibniz's strategy of and pre-established harmony is, is a pretty good solution to mind-body problems. Um, but when we think about it, we really do have to think about spontaneity and think about the responsibility of the individual subject. Um, and as we look at the Leibniz-Spinoza debate, I think we can see pretty clearly that Leibniz doesn't care um, about the kind of spontaneous, you know, individuated subject. Um, or like Spinoza does not Spinoza does not yeah. care about that, and Leibniz really cares a lot. Yeah. Um, and so in your project, you kind of started from issues about mechanism, um, but as we follow your project, you really land on issues about the agency of individual subjects. Yeah. Um, and so I wondered if you could reflect on that trajectory in, in your dissertation, and um, I guess I'm suggesting you could use Leibniz's split with Spinoza as a way to kind of get a handle on um, that movement from concerns in mechanics and the desire to take advantage of mechanical models, um, and the way that's going to bump up against moral philosophy and freedom, um, again, sort of under the heading of spontaneity. Um, so yes, as a, as a way of clarification, so w would you suggest that something like the way that Spinoza um, wants to talk about um, freedom um, is, also, is also a response to something like the mechanical philosophy and the way that, that bodies are, let's say, determined by um, other bodies? Is it an alternative sort of way of responding to the mechanical philosophy? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, it seems to me that in Spinoza, there's just not a lot of emphasis um, on my individual yeah. freedom and you know the fate of my individual soul and kind of the just desserts sorts yeah. of discourse. Um, and that in the end, it's it's a little bit difficult to figure out what individuates me. Certainly, um, at, at the level of knowledge. Um, whereas in Leibniz, there's a kind of constant concern, and, and you see this in his interlocutors too, that you know there's substantial identity for yeah. the knowing subject, yeah. um, and it's not simply a kind of claim about epistemology like this individual knows, 
um, you know, which is yeah. Thomas's claim against the federalism. It's really link up with ultimate, with questions of personal agency and so responsibility, yeah. um, and I that that's where it's going to be tough. I, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, it's and, and you know, as, as you know, that it's not like Leibniz has a sort of very satisfying ultimately account of, of freedom, or at least there's, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it, it looks very deterministic, um, and obviously very sort of it's all predetermined. Um, so my thought on that, I mean, it's certainly an important question, and, and, and Leibniz is certainly very much concerned with preserving something like a framework in which God can um, deliver rewards and punishments in a, in a just fashion, right, so that he's, he's able to say that, that we all sort of deserve what we, what we receive in the end. Um, but I guess where I sort of, and this is one of the reasons why I'm very interested in some of the mechanical um, I think that that sort of gets translated into all this sort of metaphysical work um, mm-hmm. that things like force yeah. in the philosophy of nature, within a philosophy of metaphysics, or within a, within a metaphysics. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. uh, so, in other words, uh, you know, uh, the moral dimension is is absolutely there, and it's it's very crucial for Leibniz. Um, but at the same time, his theory of substance, which is sort of trying to respond to that idea that God needs to be able to dispense work to say, well, in fact, the mechanical philosophy is incomplete because you can't explain the reason why any particular body um, exists on, on its own terms. So I guess that's sort of always the direction I always end up sort of turning in uh, to try to understand what that is up to um, overall. You know, certainly, as, you know, I certainly respect the, the way that we might be unsatisfied with let's certainly how he, how he approaches Spinoza. Um, but I do think that where, where, where Spinoza is concerned, and this is, I guess, my, my reading of, of the way that Leibniz relates to him, I do think that, that Leibniz thought that Spinoza's system didn't work, I mean, in, in an explanatory sort of uh, mode. In other words, to say why these individuals, imaginary or otherwise, um, are, are, are present within nature. Um, so in other, then you know, he has to sort of do a lot more um, uh, with regards to you know, individual substantial forms to sort of ground all of it. So in other words, I, I do think that Leibniz thought, um, hey, if Spinoza, if, if, if Spinoza was right, then there wouldn't be anything. And, and, and certainly, you know, you know we, <laughs> I guess we've had lots of conversations about yeah. um, that particular take, a, take on Spinoza over the years. Um, let's see, I think I have one more thought. Um, now, I guess turning to the, the way that I'm reading the, the Tractatus on the Emanation of Intellect more directly, um, <clears throat> I think one of the things that, that I want to stress is the way that, um, on the one hand, Spinoza has sort of two different models of automata, a bindless automaton, which is sort of stuck in imaginative, imaginative ideas, um, buffeted by external causes, and then the sort of spiritual automaton, which at least you know, is sort of reproducing the, the true order of nature. Um, the way that that gets translated in Leibniz for me is, is the way that, well, actually all of our perceptions are the function of a, a spiritual automaton, even our imaginary ones, even what appear to be external sort of causes. So he sort of sucks it all up into um, the internal nature of, 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 of an individual. Um, and that's something that I'm, I'm sort of very interested in, in, in with regards to that, that, that comparison of the automata in, in, in Spinoza versus Leibniz. Um, it's a very long-winded saying, way of saying, I, I think Leibniz has his reasons for doing what he does and mm-hmm. metaphysical reasons, but they're not necessarily going to be satisfied. Right. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think I'm suggesting that maybe press harder on yeah. the difference. 
um, yeah. to show what's at stake for Leibniz, right? And in that final yeah. move of, as you say, sort of vacuuming up all the forms of perception into the interior um, yeah. of, of the substance, right? That's exactly the point at which you see the boundaries, yeah. right? That clear inside, outside, yeah. um, and that sense of individual substance. Um, yeah, and I think in terms of one thing that I think when Bones brought up, it, I should do more work. I, I, I do need to do more work on the way that Leibniz um, interpreted the, the eternity of the, of, of the mind in, in Ethics 5. That seems like one point that whether he's getting spent as a writer or not, it would be you know, something that he, he would have to uh, obviously sort of contend with. Mm -hmm. I think in terms of what, what, what Spinoza was doing. Yeah. Right, yeah. and again, I mean, you know, what's the context in which we're reading Spinoza and, you know, the way Leibniz reads Spinoza and what, you know, you or I think is a better reading of Spinoza now, and this is like a whole other question. Um, so I, I, I think as I read the thesis, I am, I, I'm really fascinated by this idea of synthesizing ideas of spontaneity um, and kind of metaphysical priority um, with mechanism. Right, I mean, this is just such an interesting project. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I think is really striking here is that we're used to thinking of the mechanical philosophy as, an all, you know, as really just separate from uh, philosophy of nature driven by substantial forms. And here in Leibniz, we have a very intricate effort um, to bring these back together um, so as to explain agency centrally. Um, and I think your dissertation really prods us to think more flexibly and more creatively about how those might fit together um, and to rethink, you know, our how we formulate the relationships of physics and metaphysics yeah. over this period. I think that's a real contribution um, in the dissertation, and I learned a lot um, in, you know, in the way you bring that issue to the fore. Um, so I want to thank you for that. Um, maybe I will ask one more question, and then we'll open it up so that everybody has a chance. Um, I think maybe I will ask you another large question. Um, in, in your project, you say, look, we have a lot of different receptions um, of Leibniz. Um, you just mentioned that we have idealist and phenomenalist receptions of Leibniz. And the kind of prevail, one of the prevailing approaches to Leibniz comes out of Justin Smith's work on living bodies and the idea of organic models um, in Leibniz. And I, I think the idea of the organic is a very interesting place right, to think about physics and metaphysics. And, and in your directions for future research, you raise this issue of imminent teleology. Um, and I think you might pursue that in terms of formal causation um, in particular. And there's a lot of work on that these days. I wonder if you could um, reflect in some detail about what we learn from the model of the organic body and what we learn from the model of the spiritual automaton and how we might kind of bring those together in our thinking about reading Leibniz. Uh, um, thank you. I mean, so it's a very, lar very large question, but it's yeah. a very, very good question. 
question that uh, you know, is one of the drivers of the work. Um, certainly reading sort of opened a lot of doors what I thought was relevant and what one could do with in, in, in research in, in Leibniz. Um, <clears throat> let me think. Um, so one of the challenges that I will, okay, so I guess really briefly what Justin Smith does is he says, um, in fact, when we look at this model of a machine of nature, um, we can recognize that, that Leibniz's sort of natural philosophy, account of nature as a whole, um, is really grounded in living things. So, so the notion of an organic body um, is sort of the foundational unit within Leibniz's ontology, or what you might call Leibniz's ontology, as opposed to a bottom level. Leibniz might be an idealist, or not. Comments. I think one of the things that, that I wanted to do in this dissertation is to show how there's this sort of other side of, of the coin in terms of the notion of spiritual autonomy. So corresponding to that machine of nature, we do have to take into account, of course, the sort of immaterial entity which is um, running in parallel in, in a certain sense with um, the unfolding of the body. So that's one of the sort of ways that I see my, my that I wanted to see my dissertation sort of fitting into the sort of larger um, scope of, 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 of scholarship in, in Leibniz. Um, <coughs> I guess for my part, with the question of imminent teleology, so what I, and I said, I think, in the comments that I'm a little, I'm still a little unsatisfied with how the model of the spiritual automaton really can help us understand, I think, the way that perceptions are supposed to unfold according to the process. I think it's sort of really see if that model is very fruitful. I think it's a very good notion of external teleology. Um, in other Leibniz's, you know, what are are sort of imposed on us, in a sense, by, by God that we are then um, realizing. Um, I think it needs to be more work just to show how specifically Yeah, no, that's certainly very, very helpful. And, and I mean, 
you know, as I admit, I've been very focused on that sort of sole component. That's, um, yeah, but, but, but absolutely, and I think you know, I think the, the major sort, the major real text for that is that is the one letter to Devolder, where he has a sort of five-part schema of, of all the different things we need to, you know, um, when we analyze the substance that we can sort of isolate. Um, yeah, you know, I think there is a sense in which this is more than, I guess, perhaps its organic body, which is just one of those five components, um, and the soul, which is five components. So um, certainly one I um, can sort of and see how, if, you know, how it ultimately the sort of soul fits into the picture of um, unit of nature or something like this. Yeah. Yeah. So, It's a little bit awkward to say that because everyone knows that I already think that, whereas the outside readers um, <coughs> have, a, have a better vantage point. Um, and Chris, I, I want to say that I so appreciate the design of this project and the way you have uh, kept the focus narrow and created a, a coherent discussion, even as you bring in Leibniz's many concerns and many interlocutors. It's a model project that way, and I really offer you every every compliment in that regard, um, and truly appreciate the clarity uh, of your work. At this point, let's open the floor to anyone who would like to ask Chris some questions or make some comments. Yes. So I think my, my um, let me think. Um, so one of the, the real features, I think, of, of Leibniz's version of, of, of substance um, is that notion of unity, right? So he thinks that's lacking in, in Spinoza. And then there's lots of sort of moral consequences, um, theological consequences that, that sort of follow from that. Um, but also, in, in my view, once again, sort of physical consequences. So he thinks that, that, that the sort of physics of Spinoza um, is sort of inadequate, at least that's my uh, sort of take on things. Um, <coughs> let me try to think. Um, now, one interesting thing that, that, that um, Leibniz sort of says about Spinoza um, in particular is he says that, that the mind is not an idea. Um, so one way that he wants to sort of, one way that Leibniz and Spinoza, I think, sort of plays itself out is, uh, can you think of an idea actually constituting the nature of, of the mind, or do you need something else? Um, um, that's sort of one piece of what, what Leibniz thinks is very important um, and is, is, is very explicit about criticizing Spinoza on that point. And I think certainly I think knows quite a bit about that particular um, 
discussion. So, uh, so I don't know if that's, that's helpful. There's certainly a lot one could say, and I'm, I'm by no means an expert in, 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 in mathematics. Um, and interestingly, you know, sort of a lot of the discoveries that, that led up to the, the, the calculus. Or he really sort of learns mathematics, um, or really starts starts sort of sort of field, um, and then he develops his sort of mature period mature subsequent to that. Um, there may be a little bit of a gap there. Um, I really don't have <laughs> very informed things to say. I want to work on. How. Um, within an individual thing, the ability to unfold an infinite series of, of predicates, let's say. I think that's, you know, necessary changes. I think very much what, he, you know, what he's interested in terms of infinite series and, and, and um, you know, the, the calculus. So um, there's definitely a connection there. Physics, understanding reality is an expression of, let's say, super sensible in the sense that we can't perceive the activity. So I think, in terms of a, I don't know, attitudinal difference between quantified and said, like, to start with 
it does bring up the number of things. And it comes to kind of thinking through, like, balance arguments, which we also talked about in the metaphysics. Kant famously calls the, the, the spiritual automaton in, in, uh, in the second critique um, you know, a mechanical notion of, of freedom is just sort of carrying out it, it, its, its nature. And it's not real freedom. It's not real freedom in the sense of, of being super you know, which is not connected to all this sort of material So, Kant sort of explicitly talks about this concept, but that's not what I mean by freedom. Designed by God. Is that? So, I was wondering, you Sphere that can sort of exist on its own. But in self, however, however we want to sort of think about supersensible entities, they have to be explaining the, the existence and the actual existence of these individuals that exist in the physical realm. Um, so that connection is there because physical is not autonomous in some strong sense. Now, um, you know what, what the nature of intuition is in Kant, um, but I think that's how Leibniz would, would respond. You know, it's not. You need an explanation of the actual physical entities um, that we experience. Um, so I, I don't know if that, that's helpful. And, I mean, I, I'm, and I suppose I am probably, well, um, and I mean, I'm not an expert on German idealism, but I think that's sort of the way that Leibniz may be a little more akin to someone like, like Schelling, someone like Hegel in, in certain respects um, than Kant. But I don't know if that's, that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. Individualization would be a would be something 
Um, so a couple, couple things I'd say. So, so uh, I guess for those of you who might be Of, of individuation in a very scholastic sort of way, and I don't know really what this means, sort of material. But he says, you know, he's he, I think he follows Suarez and says that individuation is the whole entity. But then later on, he doesn't sort of use that language of principles of individuation, etc. Identical, he says, no, it's Best. Um, and so in that regard, every detail is very much relevant to the individual nature um, and the way that it's designed and sort of organized. Or planned out, I suppose, is what I'm talking about. Um, and you know, as you sort of suggested, it's one of the few ingredients that the notion of automaton is, is helpful because it sort of brings in, at least by analogy, the notion of design um, in the sense of, you know, we build self moving machines um, that are sort of designed to carry out certain activities. Um, and are, which are parts or something like that. Yeah. That's a great question, and uh, I was hoping no one would push me on this too much. But I mean, <laughs> um, you know, but there's this famous passage in where um, Leibniz says, you know, if you um, try to find perception, if you if you enter into a mill, a machine, find perception. There's nothing in that mill, parts of the mill, the mechanical uh, pulling and pulling or pushing and pulling of the parts of that mill that could explain the existence of perception, as to say, the expression of many things within one. Um, and so there's this whole series of commentary. Oh, are not machines. And he's an immaterialist. And you, know, so, and you get this in, in, in people like Searle, people like Dennett, um, you know, very recent, very, very important um, philosophers of mind. Um, so I sort of, at the very end of the, the, the dissertation, so I said, well, actually, but, you know, then they talk about the spiritual automaton in the next paragraph. Um, in the next passage of the modality. So um, part of what I sort of suggestively say is that, okay, well, in fact, insofar as he's modeling something like the soul on um, a self-moving machine, that can, in some sense, inform how we think of, 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 of thought. 
Now, the word cognition, it's sort of, I mean, it's a compromised word because it, it's not analogous, or I mean, it, it's not exactly what we think of cognition today. Um, <coughs> something like, some, you know, so, sort of shorthand for mental process in general. Um, but I think one thing that we can think of um, that, that is sort of, or that is um, very much relevant would be the way that I indicated this to, to, to Stevens, um, that perceptions are sort of meant to sort of follow one from the net. Next, sort of on analogy, let's say with something how the, the way that um, movements of machine follow um, from its sort of prior dispositions. Um, Leibniz tries as hard as he possibly can to bring them together. Um, and that's really one of the sort of challenges. And I think that, you know, Farshid's smiling, but that's, you know, I think what Kant is sort of indicating, right, that it's just, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a sort of counterfeit notion of freedom, right? It's just sort of carrying out the processes which you're already designed to carry out. Um, and I think, once again, I think Leibniz has good reasons for, for, for suggesting that. And I think that's one of the things that I'm certainly interested in when it comes to this dissertation. Um, Uh, yeah, sure, absolutely, yeah. 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 I mean, and so one, one of the things that Lyman sort of does, you know, he always tries to, to he always tries to give you, give you an answer and then you're never satisfied. But, well, why would you want anything else a anyway? So I think when it comes to <laughs> someone like Descartes, um, and not determined by our prior um, perceptions, dispositions, et cetera, just why would you want that? Where you could act completely without Insane in some sense, you know, that, that you would even desire that. Um, so, you know. <laughs> yeah. Can we make an analogy then to spiritual 
spiritual? Uh, you know, it's a fantastic question. I mean, so, you know, one of, the, for those of you who don't know, I don't know if everyone's familiar with this occasional, it's one of these really, I think, sort of fascinating, but perhaps really bizarre ideas or where it says, you know, we can't understand physical without actually saying God is responsible for everything that happens. Um, so ultimately, we have to sort of posit God as the sort of exp expl uh, ultimate explanation. So when um, these God making it happen. Um, now, one, it's, it is sort of tricky to sort of disentangle where Leibniz is not exactly like an occasionalist because you know, he, he insists that he's not. The new system says, okay, there's, there's three options. There's influence that somehow there's some sort of because that's insane. That doesn't make any sense. Um, which is, which is, which is um, but it's not um, so occasionalism is an explanation. It's sort of a possible hypothesis, and he's, he's, you're not think it. Um, and so he says, well, any nature has to um, actual natures of the things that, that, that it's interested in. So actually, any sufficient uh, explanation within, within nature has to this deus ex machina. Um, and that's the interaction takes place the way that it does. Um, that being said, I think there's a sense in which he, he's also going to try to try to say, well, under the right description. Um, and I, I don't know directly that you're, you're, you're referring to, so I should, I should look it up, but I imagine that might be something like what he's, he's doing there. So in other words, he's saying, um, you know, I can do everything the We understand each other, which is obviously an open question. Um, in any given given God could have created you all alone in the world. Um, and everything would appear exactly the same to you. Um, but then you know, it says that wouldn't be that wouldn't that wouldn't satisfy God's infinite perfection. Right. So, so why would he do that? Yeah, yeah, yes, actually. So I think it's, it's I think the language I might be being precise, but I think that it's possible that he created subjects all alone, that the phenomena would appear exactly the same that 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 particular substance. Um, but it's less perfect.
Yeah. No, it's a fantastic question. I mean, um, I think there's some work that, that we'd have to do to, to, to try to understand, I think, really what the nature of a, of a corporeal automaton, and the, the relevant nature of a cor or, or the relevant type of corporeal automaton is. So, for instance, I think if you're saying something like, well, we can think of the ability to remove parts. When it comes to the machine's nature of that, arguably, or, 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 or some people would argue, are the sort of fundamental building an infinitely complex structure that's organized by God that, you know, in some sense, you can't even sort of, you couldn't even if you wanted to. As you're already designed back in a certain way yourself, sort of extract a part. Um, so there's this sort of, you know, so incredibly There might be a sort of sense in which there is real ex efficient causation from one external thing to, to another. Um, but at the same time, Leibniz has this real, the way that Leibniz's metaphysics and dynamics work out, um, it's this you know, internal uh, unfolding of, of force that's already present within the internal nature. Of the um, so there's a lot of, and as I said, I don't have um, <coughs> this done to really sort of you know, make sense of that. Um, and you know, how we work machine, um, what a force, if any, do we need to get from external bodies to, to sort of, you know, or is always just sort of there latent in some, in some regard um, and waiting to be um, sort of unleashed or something like that. So, so I mean, that's what I, I, I guess I could say at this point. But,
especially in, in terms of sort of the uh, Leibniz's critique of the sort of, um, parallelism that was raised earlier and the relationship between the mind and the body. Um, if everything also Oh, I see. Or what is what is thought, or what is? What is yeah. In Leibniz, um, as, as 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 many of you might might know, um, so he's he's absolutely opposed to the idea that um, everything unfolds according to what he calls a logical necessity. Um, so, in other words, it's very important to him that this world could that that this world is contingent in the sense that it could have been otherwise. Um, there's no logical reason why you couldn't have had a different color hair, in other words. There could be a possible world in which um, something we might want to describe as, as Ian has that color hair. Um, so he's opposed to necessity in that sense. Um, that said, and this is a thing that you know, I think and are, 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 continue to be, be interested in this topic today, is that a real notion of contingency? Um, be, given that, let's say, destined to act in a certain way. Um, it's not a logical necessity, but maybe it's some sort of, um, in some sense, physical necessity, in some sense, natural necessity, um, et cetera. Um, you know, there is this sort of very strong determinism um, in certain regards, even if it's not you know, logically impossible that you could have been otherwise. Um, now, in terms of, let's say, you know, philosophy, we think of philosophy as something like um, you know, a break with necessity or, or sort of, you know, um, stepping back from and, and sort of rethinking of how things have unfolded. I don't know if Leibniz really has, you know, I don't know if Leibniz really is, has something to say about that. Um, the way that I take philosophy, for, or one of the ways I take philosophy for Leibniz is, you know, an attempt to explain what exists, right? So what is here in the world? And one of the things that he does is, which I find very fascinating, is he says, you know, I, I have to take into account what's said about it, right? And, so, and sort of, in, in some sense, try to package that all or the best of everything that has been said about that Acknowledge of um, that he might be trying to fuse together. Or, or, or at least apparently disparate philosophical ideas into something like a, a unitary um, concept. Um, so that's one of the ways that I think I understand philosophy in, in Leibniz's case. Um, I mean, so if I were really to be pushed, I think the sort of ideal philosophy for Leibniz, and if we want to say something like the monodology could be, could be an example of that, or it could be um, one particular way that could play out, um, would be a system that really incorporates all of the best that has been said. 
Um, so in other words, that might come out with, with a crazy or looks insane or, you know, something like this, you know, windowless monads, something like that. But I, I think in, in, in Linus' defense, or this is, you know, once again, maybe a little bit speculative, um, I would say that what he was trying to do was to come up with the, the system which, which can maximally sort of pack in um, the truth of what other people have said. Um, so in other words, even if he says, so, you know, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, um, Lewis brought up the sort of Russell um, quotation. I sort of said it's, it's elegant and beautiful, but maybe, maybe arguably groundless. Um, in a certain sense, it's not in the sense that it's drawn from um, the reserve of metaphysical um, ideas that have been sort of proclaimed throughout um, throughout history. Um, so in that sense, it has a very particular ground, and it's in a sense an expression of, of that history. Um, that being said, you know, it doesn't make it right, or it doesn't make it true, or something like this as a description or a metaphysical picture. Um, but in that sense, I think it's very well grounded. Um, and but you know, once again, this is sort of highly highly speculative on my part. But, yeah. I think you might add that in Leibniz, there's a, what you're really emphasizing the need for scientific explanation, mm -hmm. right? That ultimately the metaphysical claims are very tightly linked up with claims about the natural world. Yeah. And compatible with, with yeah. yeah, right. I mean, if our goal is you know. Is, is to talk about force. Right? We need to talk about that as it operates in physics and as it operates in metaphysics yeah. as well. I mean, philosophy hasn't, uh, you know, kind of been untethered from natural science explanation yet. But also theological explanation. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, you know, and there's, there's very important work that, that can be done. Um, the way that he's related to sort of, let's say, um, Chinese thought. He's very interested in Chinese thought. Um, I think, you know, and I don't, I'm an expert on this, but you know, he, he sort of tries to translate that into matter and form in certain ways in Aristotelian concepts. But he's, he's, he's concerned with saying, you know, you have to sort of take into account that sort of thing. Or at least his philosophy is, is, is not something which says you don't have to pay attention to that or excludes that. No, I mean, it's a great, great, great question, and certainly, and I think this is one of the chapters, yeah, it's, it's ultimately not necessarily clear how really well it fits in with, with the sort of um, project as a whole. Um, so I, I think Hobbes is very important for the young man, and that's pretty indisputable and pretty, pretty clear, um, where he's getting a lot of the sort of mechanical philosophy through reading works like De Corpore um, and thinking about them, um, and, you know, taking up a notion of, of Canados as the sort of beginning of motion um, and saying that is the connection between mind and body, um, very much, you know, or you know, just like, like Hobbes does. Um, now then it's an open question, and this is where my dissertation is suggestive, if not sort of conclusive, that that is sort of precursor to a lot of the sort of later stuff on it, um, but also sort of, you know, there in the sense of saying, 
well, um, whatever a body is, uh, or whatever a soul is, um, it's in some sense a concentration of bodily motion. And I think that's a thesis which, which, is, which is, is very Hobbesian. Um, and I think that's there up through the, the, you know, the sort of in the mature Leibniz, et cetera. Um, and I mean, I think one thing I, I, I want to try to think about is if there's a way to sort of show that or if it's, it's, it's sort of worth sort of, you know, making a real strong claim about. But I think that is there. And I, I think that is, I, I do consider that a sort of Hobbesian uh, point. Yeah, so it's sort of an inverted Hobbesianism. You know. Well, on that note, um, I want to thank everybody, um, particularly Chris, for being in the hot seat for two hours, um, and my fellow members of the committee, and all of you for coming and asking <coughs> questions and giving us your philosophical time and attention for two hours. At this point, the formal part of uh, the formal public part of the defense is finished. Um, there's reception down in the philosophy department. And what happens next is all of you will leave so that the committee can confer. Um, and Chris, we ask you not to stray too far, because um, we'll confer briefly and come get you. And everybody else, please enjoy the reception. We'll be down shortly.